Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. The title for the second podcast with Professor Johan Rockström is Eight Years Left to Transform the Future of Humanity or Destabilize the Planet. Welcome. You have been doing work for a long time with our planet boundaries. We have got reality lessons with a holistic perspective. Can you give the listener a view of how can we drive the change into this direction of thinking and how to transform it into policy and action? Mm. Well, of course, how, how to get this uh, in, into our, our, let's say, as a paradigm shift in our thinking and, and into operational policy remains a challenge but you know i would i would argue that there is essentially just just one fundamental factor here which is that the science the evidence is crystal clear we are deep into the anthropocene meaning that we've started the great acceleration in 1950s exponentially rising our pressures on planet earth we're hitting the ceiling of what the planet can cope with we're deep into the Anthropocene, where we are the dominating force of change on planet Earth. We now have evidence that, you know, we as scientists can say without any hesitation, we are at risk of destabilizing the entire planet. We are at risk of handing over to future generations a less livable or less stable planet than the one we live on today. And, and moreover, we see the impacts already today of, of the impact so far, very, very significantly. I mean, the heat waves we're experiencing and the forest fires and the water scarcity and the food prices and the inflation, which are related to climate impacts, land system change and water scarcity and biodiversity loss are very real and very costly and impact millions of people already today across the entire world. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, a, it's a, another one of these necessities to, to simply um, you know, reconnect our own world of development with, with the stability of planet Earth. That it's, a, it's, it's basically about, you know, in, in 1992 at the Rio conference with the, after the Brundtland Commission and the Agenda 21, we agreed on, on how we define sustainable development. And, and that has become established across the world. It was uh, decisions taken politically, it came from dialogues with civil society and science and, and business around the world, defining the three pillars of sustainable development, you know, the, the, the ecological, the social, and the economic. And, and it was largely about reducing environmental impacts, but had, had actually writings about the global stewardship as well. Today, we have scientific evidence, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, that 30 years later, that that was not enough. Today, we have to define sustainable development in the Anthropocene as having a world that can develop in a prosperous and equitable way within a resilient and stable Earth system. We've come to that point where we have no choice but to recognize the need to, to keep an eye on and, and actively secure the stability of the entire planet. Now, if you do that with the planetary boundary framework, or if you do that by observing all the 15 tipping element systems, or if you do that 
by uh, changing the global commons legal definition. There, there, there may be a mix of different approaches, but there's no doubt, there's actually no doubt that, that something of this kind is absolutely urgently needed for any nation or any community to have any chance of having a prosperous development in the future. And, and this, is, this is really the drama that in the pandemic, we, I think, I hope, <clears throat> we, we learned a globalization lesson that we are really living on, a, on an interconnected, intertwined, globalized world. When one thing goes wrong in one corner of the planet, in this case, a zoonotic viral spillover in Wuhan in China, a spillover from wildlife to humans, by the way, which is very likely a risk that increases very significantly because of transgressing the planet to bound on biodiversity, but that's another story. But when something goes wrong in one corner of the planet, it can propel itself in, in accelerated fashion across the entire world and cause a pandemic. So it, it just sends its, its massive impact across the whole Earth system. Well, it's exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing with if we lose the Amazon rainforest. It's a Wuhan equivalent. Lose the Greenland ice sheet, it's a Wuhan equivalent. Lose the West Antarctic ice sheet, it's a Wuhan equivalent. Something goes wrong with one of the tipping element systems because we're pushing planetary boundaries too far in one corner of the planet and that will propel itself with impacts on the entire world. So any community, any economy, any nation, any prime minister has a very strong interest to ensure that nobody destroys the tipping element systems, the, the systems that hold the planetary boundaries intact anywhere on the Earth system. So, so what I'm saying is, I live in Berlin, you are in London. Well, it's equally important for the two of us that uh, the West Antarctic ice shelf or the tropical coral reef systems or the Amazon rainforest or the Siberian tundra or the wetland systems uh, uh, across large parts of the temperate world are intact because they are not only providing a natural capital for the local communities, they're also providing a service to humanity. This makes them global commons. This makes them systems that need to be governed universally as a community for the entire world. I know yeah. that this is, this is very, very difficult, yeah. but, but, but that's where we are. And, yeah. and I think that, that new narrative is, is um, I mean, I, I cannot see any, any other way than just pushing forward those insights and just pushing that scientifically based messaging persistently and until, until we hopefully get, get some, um, you know, some traction. So maybe uh, is it a, a problem of governance, uh, the structure of, of government's uh, way of dealing with this type of issues? Uh, it could be also related to business way of, of how to integrate this uh, type of uh, uh, holistic perspective in their model of business or uh, government and, and also the reflection of the civil society, how they are mm. uh, acting. Uh, do you see that the, the, the government are really aware about to change uh, the way of, of thinking? No, they're not. I mean, this is um, a dilemma that um, our world, well, to begin with, our world is configured 
under the assumption of, of incrementality and uh, that things are predictable and that you know th things should not happen abruptly, there should not be surprises and, and there should definitely not be something going wrong in a completely different corner of the planet hitting, hitting where I am on my, my side of the planet. So the pandemic is an example of, of something that is quite shocking for, for the world community. And, and, and the same, same goes with, with climate change and, and, and the other impacts that we're seeing on, on planetary boundaries. So, so you're right that, that there is this, this inbuilt, in a, you know, we're incapable in, in the policy, business, and even in civil society to really see our interconnectors at the global level. The, the second problem is that we have configured our legal systems and our political systems and our economy according to nation states. So, so politicians, um, you know, they are, they are preoccupied first and foremost of what's happening within their borders. Now that doesn't work when you're trying to ensure that the planet does not cross tipping points. You need to recognize that you have to take equal responsibility for systems that are outside of the national borders, but even systems that are inside your own national borders, but which are systems that everyone depends on. So this is, this is a legal challenge and, and an economic challenge of how to manage systems that, uh, that are, let's call them private property, but which are still providing a service to the entire of humanity. And, and, and this is something we're still lacking and, and it, it's very, very worrying. But third, what is, what is equally difficult in all this is that is, is the time the timeline. So not only are we in our economies and the political system unable to deal with um, challenges that are outside of nation states or, or challenges that kind of are regional global, also we're unable or very bad at dealing with challenges that, that, that become catastrophes 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line. If, if something doesn't go wrong immediately or within the next few years, it's like it's beyond the horizon. It's not factored in whatsoever. We even have economic discount rates, which, which paradoxically and, and completely, you know, it's completely bizarre that it means that investing in the future has no value today because basically discounting the future means that in the end, the, the present value of solving a problem today that will hit sometime in the future is not worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So we see this problem that even, even if the green ice sheet crosses a tipping point, it will take a few hundred years before you get seven meters sea level rise. Well, that's a complete disaster. And, and in geological time, or even in historic times, even in human historic time, that's a very short period. I'm 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 fascinated by by history and and uh, I mean what what happened um, with the, the the formation of uh, your and my um, home nation uh, in the 15th century and the Vikings in the 12th century and uh, looking back to the medieval times. I mean this is uh, I mean you have religions. Uh, most important books on earth are written on on happenings on earth 2,000 years ago. So it's not as if we're not able to, to recognize the value of, of what happened 2,000 years ago for our current history, but we're unable, completely unable, to recognize the value of the next 2,000 years as if there is no, no coming for us on Earth. Mm. And, and this is, uh, this, I think these are elements that we also need to address, uh, go beyond nation state, 
and recognize that 100 years is a very short time period and it's definitely a time period that I as a politician or as a business leader must take responsibility for, active responsibility for. This is something that is related also to how to mobilize people for talking to politicians who take decisions on policy and action. And we have seen a diversity of mobilizing action from everything from Greta Thunberg to Extinct Rebellion, we don't have time, expansional roadmap, Earth Day, Race to Zero campaigns, citizens' assemblies. It's, it's a mixture of different types of action to mobilize people. But can we do more to mobilize people? Yes, I think we can do more and we can do differently. And I think everything you counted listed here are, let's say in general initiatives that I very much admire and respect. And I think they're important and I think they should continue. But I'm increasingly convinced that on their own, they're actually uh, you know, not far away from counterproductive. Why? Well, it's because, you know, we face a planetary emergency. We need the whole world to transition in within a decade. We need, um, you know, everyone in society to step on board. And, and we know that, you know, the Extinction Rebellions and, uh, uh, you know, the, the environmental NGOs and uh, all the, uh, you know, let's say the frontier of environmentalism they are important because they are putting the flag up front. They are surfing furthest ahead, but they only engage maximum up to 20% of any population in any country. And, and that, those numbers are quite well established. Um, the country which comes highest is Germany. And, and as you know, we have uh, here in Germany, Die Grüne now running the country even, uh, being in coalition with the... Uh, with Olaf Scholz's SPD party, but but that seems to be a glass ceiling. You know, it's it's very difficult in Sweden. It's never come above fifteen percent. Like it seems like fifteen to twenty percent is 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 a ceiling of uh, of the proportion in any given society where you have populations really really willing to to step out of their comfort zone to act on, on the climate and sustainability crisis. The vast majority in societies, the remaining 80%, they're, they're not skeptics. Uh, actually, we have a lot of statistics today, uh, many, many, many opinion polls showing that on average, something like 70%, 70% of any population, be it in China, India, Sweden, Germany, US, are, are deeply concerned about climate change. They want climate action and they, they trust the climate science. So there is something interesting happening here with the, with the vast majority. And, and, and in any given population, you have then up to 20% really, really engaged. In the other extreme end, you have a small, small proportion of very, very vocal skeptics and denialists. They are so few, so few that they can be completely discarded so you can just leave them aside. There's no point in engaging with them even because they, they are just uh, questioning everything that has to do with, with truth and, and science. So you can just leave them apart. So the interesting part 
of any population is is the big vast something like 70 to 80 percent of of population which i would call the indifferent masses and they are indifferent which makes them sound quite boring but they are not boring this is uh, how people are most they are uh, having many preoccupations in life they they care a lot about the environment but they also care about their children and they care about their economy and they care about their health and they care about their house mortgages and they care about many many things uh, their mother-in-laws and their grandmothers and you know there's a lot to care about in a life so i think our task is to make it very easy for this vast majority who are ready to go who wouldn't um, put a put on any big demonstrations or strikes to, to to join any journey if we can make it clear that stepping on board makes life easier and and how do you make life easier on the journey to net zero or the journey towards sustainable healthy food well to begin with you make it cheaper and that is very easy to do because you simply have to introduce uh, the, the the economic incentives like a price on carbon which properly uh, rebalances the market failure that we have been living with for 150 years but number two is you have to make things accessible you may have to make it easy i don't know if you've tried to drive an electric car through sweden it's it's not easy i can tell you you you're very happy when you cross the border to norway and you drive the the the, the latter half in, in Norway, the world's most advanced electric mobility country in, in the whole world. You have to make it easy, you have to make it cheaper, you have to show that, that the transition gives, gives multiple benefits. You become healthier, you have uh, more money in the pocket, it's cheaper, it's smarter, it's more attractive, your kids get more, more engaged. That's the way to succeed. And, and, and this, again, does not rule out the Fridays for Future demonstrations or the Extinction Rebellion or the, uh, you know, no growth or, or even degrowth community or the ecocide community. I mean, I love them all and I engage with many of them and I think they are fantastic. But we have to recognize that, that we are so far not getting the vast, vast majority on board. And, and I think um, we have to play this along a more multifaceted portfolio and i think the narrative the narrative should be not that we're saving the world the narrative should be we're creating the more modern attractive advanced prosperous future we we are we are creating the the you know where you want to be in the future you don't want to go backwards you want to go forward and if you want to go forward you go fossil fuel free and and i think that that is something that that we have failed with so far, uh, we're getting there. If you look at the, the role of science, can science do better to explain the complex communication on climate and planet boundaries? Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, no, I would argue in the sense that there is this tendency. I don't know if you've seen um, the, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio Don't Look Up uh, uh, movie, yes. which has this, this classic moment in this television interview where 
where Leonardo DiCaprio is 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 trying to, uh, you know, in, in frustrated make clear that an asteroid is about to catastrophically hit Earth, and and he's just laying out the science, the science he knows, the science he's an expert about. He knows about the the astrophysics, and then the journalist asks, "So what's the solution?" And 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 he of course does not have the answer to that. Why why should he have the answer to that? Uh, I mean, he, that, that's not his task to have the answer on that. And this happens all the time that uh, that I, as an Earth system scientist, are kind of asked to how how do we solve the communication challenge here? I, I think I could argue you could argue that uh, well that that's that's not really my task. Um, I think what I should do is put forward the scientific evidence as as uh, comprehensively and understandably as I ever can. Then you have a lot of other scientists, you have social scientists, um, behavioral scientists who are studying uh, particularly how to communicate uh, science and how to communicate climate science. And, and, and that, that may be a source um, of some of the solutions here. But I, I think this is an, a very good example of, uh, of where we need to collaborate across disciplines and across, across different, you know, walks of life it's not only academics academics need to work together with people like yourself of how to how to translate the science into into messaging that can be understood and and taken on board by uh, by a by a broader broader majority is it any sort of recommendation to go to netflix to see the program with you yeah, well, I mean, the, the only reason why I accepted to, to do the Breaking Boundaries documentary at Netflix was exactly along these lines, that after uh, 30 plus years of academic struggling in this area, I feel that uh, it has come to naught in the sense that it's very difficult to come across. This was a fantastic opportunity to experiment with a new way of communicating. I think that was one potential step in the right direction, but I think we are very far. I think that documentary is still a very far away from where we want to be. I mean, my, my dream would be uh, if someone would like to come forward and, uh, and, and create a, um, a uh, day after tomorrow 2.0, which is an action thriller based on science on the alternative futures of humanity on earth, where you could see uh, scenarios of uh, like uh, in the Inception movie with Leonardo Vinci walking through alternative realities where, where you compare a journey towards disaster, a business as usual journey towards disaster, towards pathways to a safe landing within planetary boundaries and, and, and what are the differences in those two worlds. Uh, things like that, I, I, I agree with you that we need to experiment with new ways of, uh, of, um, of coming across with, with the science, but, but so far I see very little of that. Let us uh, talk a little bit about the, the, the role of leadership in science. And I know that I have a lot of listeners uh, which are young and going into science and uh, you with so many years of experience of leadership in the typical role of, of climate and sustainability. Uh, what is your experience? Of what sort of advice uh, can you give to the young generation who go to this area? For thinking uh, of, uh, I was thinking of, 
of uh, Greta's generation who are the listener in our program? Well, I mean, my, my, my first and foremost advice comes from the discussion or conversation we've had so far that if, if you want to be successful and if you want to have really inspiring, uh, an inspiring role and inspiring jobs in the future, uh, having a deep understanding of, uh, of, of the planet and sustainability across the fields, I think will be a tremendous uh, comparative advantage, either if you go into engineering or, or digital technologies, or if you become a doctor or, or bio, biologist, or in whatever, whatever uh, you know, profession, I, I see uh, sustainability today as, as, a, as a huge uh, added advantage because we, we are moving in a direction where innovation and, and novelty will have to respect uh, some form of scientifically based boundaries on biodiversity, freshwater nutrients, pollutants, climate, biodiversity. And, and this is so I, I think that that's number one. It's 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 if you want to have uh, creative opportunities in the future, sustainability is the way to go. The second, I think, is uh, to um, just bolster some of the power that um, in in my whole career. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I've, I've I've said this a few times before. I mean, we we have been, as I mentioned earlier following the opinion polls over a long, long time from Yale University, particularly from my colleague, uh, Tony Lizarovitz at Yale University, who leads the opinion polls on, on climate attitudes, showing persistently that a vast majority of populations, both in the US and Europe, are, are deeply concerned about climate change and trust climate science. And, and along those, those data, I've often asked myself, where are the young people? Why, why don't we see a reaction? How, how can young people not stand on the streets saying, dear adults, this is completely unacceptable. How can, you, how can you, when you have all the science and you have all the solutions, not deliver a stable climate system for your children? So in a way, when, when Greta started her Friday demonstrations outside the Swedish parliament in 2018, I mean, 2018, three years after Paris, that was like, wow, finally, you know, it was like, okay, now they are really rising. And this is, I would argue, I mean, I think nobody can prove it, but, but my hypothesis is, this is why it, it grew so fast, because it was mature, because the young people were primed up since many years and were so knowledgeable and were so clearly aware of the problems. So we should thank our school teachers around the world and we should thank a lot of parents around the world for, for having basically uh, helped establish this very high level of, uh, of understanding among the youth. And I'm so incredibly impressed today by our teenagers who are, you know, to begin with, I think, I think you and I, I could challenge you. I think you can never find a climate skeptic among the millennials. I don't think they exist. I mean, climate skeptics are predominantly men and they're predominantly retired. I mean, if you look at plus, plus 70 years old often, men, these are the denialists, the deep denialists. 
among the youth, you don't find them. They have a very, very good understanding. And, and, and my message to young people would be, remember that you are, in that sense, quite powerful because you generally know on average more than the adult generations. You are the one sitting on um, key insights for the future. And, and, and you have the right because it's an intergenerational responsibility. So, so I would say it's, it's, it's really of great, I mean, it's fully justified for, for the youth movement to, to be right at the center of, of the decision-making rooms to, to uh, uh, really, really, uh, you know, expect to be allowed to speak at the United Nations General Assembly, to give talks at the United Nations uh, climate uh, conventions, that th things, they, they should never back down. That's what I'm saying. And, and I think that is um, something that, that is really important. Going into politics? Well, <laughs> that is uh, a good question. Of course, it's, it's every individual has to take his or her decision. I'm of the view, but here I'm a, quite a conservative, boring professor. I, I think finishing your school is, uh, is a good investment for, for all young people. So I wouldn't advise anyone to go into politics too early. But, but definitely, I mean, I see all the Fridays for Future youth. I mean, the brilliance is extraordinary, but their, but their societal engagement is just incredible. I mean, uh, I, I, I must say that, again, I've never measured anything like this, but I think the, the, the average performance of, uh, of some of the Fridays for Future youth that I engage with is equal to or exceeds the, the knowledge, uh, uh, even at ministerial level, in, in politics in, in, in some of the countries that I interact with. So, I mean, there's, um, there, there, there's a lot of talent, a lot of talent here. Let me give you a final outlook question uh, when we look into the coming autumn. And uh, what is in your agenda in front of uh, COP27 in Egypt? What's mm. the important issue? Yeah, there, there's a lot, lot in the making, actually. I mean, um, to begin with, I think it could be worth sharing that last week we submitted the third scientific update on the planetary boundary science. Uh, so let's see how how it survives the, the external peer review, uh, but, but I hope that that will be coming out in the next few months. We also submitted last week the first results from the Earth Commission. The Earth Commission is an initiative that I've taken, which is uh, set up together with Future Earth, but also the Global Commons Alliance on, on doing basically an IPCC for the whole planet, defining not only the safe boundaries for humanity, but also the just boundaries for humanity. So basically doing a donut economics assessment with, with an IPCC approach. And uh, we've submitted the first manuscripts for that, which of course should, should be, uh, let's say, hitting the public domain, hopefully in the next half year. Then we have the climate week at the United Nations General Assembly in September. We're hosting at that time, the first global futures conference together with Arizona State University and something called the Earth League, a network that I'm chairing of leading 
earth system scientific institutions around the world. And there we're going to work up something really challenging, but I think important, namely what we call the 10 must-haves, namely getting a scientific community and stakeholders from different sectors to try and identify what are the 10 things that must happen if we start coming too close to tipping points. What's, what's the plan B if we need to really start pulling the brake and, and introducing some, some rapid, rapid efforts of turnaround? So that will happen uh, in September. And at the same time, we're also having a meeting of something called the, the first um, Economics Commission on Water. So, you know, Nick Stern had his uh, review on, on, on the economics of climate change. And then you have the Parthadas Gupta review on the economics of biodiversity. And now I'm co-chairing the third in that trilogy, the, the commission review on the economics of water. And, and this is exciting because it's done with uh, Mariana Matsukati and uh, uh, Ngozi, the head of the, the World Trade Organization, and 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 Tarman, who is um, you know the former, he is currently the kind of the, the second in, in command in the government in Singapore. So there's a lot happening there. Then you have, of course, um, the run up to to G uh, to, to COP27, and then hopefully along those lines also the COP15 on biodiversity in Kunming, which we don't know exactly when it will happen. So we're providing science into both of those. And um, so it's, uh, it continues to be you know, a significant effort from science to inform um, all, these, um, all these decisions um, in the near and the long term. Maybe also important in front of the eight year we have to 2030 to get yeah. something uh, like, look like a tool for, for change. It was really a great pleasure to have you here as a guest in Transformers, Johan, and uh, I hope that you will have time for some time of summer holiday in front of this uh, autumn. And, uh, and uh, But I understand also it could be difficult not to think about our climate when we look at the weather system outside mm -hmm. our doors. But thank you very much, Johan. Yeah, thank you. I'm Kai Embren. Follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I will be announcing the future guests to this podcast. And you can expect about two programs a month, and each guest has a unique story of making business and society sustainable. So find out more. Visit my homepage, kaiembren.org. Thank you for listening.